0: welcome to the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom keen daily we bring you insight from the best in economics finance investment and international relations find bloomberg surveillance on apple podcasts soundcloud bloomberg.com and of course on the bloomberg
1: record weakness for the turkish lira dollar lira Four forty six
0: twenty. Wow, that's and that's happening. Can I interrupt though, very important? You can go on, go on. Make Haley, an announcement. Haley from Beverly Hills emails in. And, loved uh, what we did in the Celtics. Wonderful. She says more basketball. More basketball is what she says. So let's do a review of the Los Angeles Lakers. Thirty five and forty seven this year, and there is your further basketball what review. What is she
1: doing awake in L.A. Right I now. don't know
0: Haley from Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Thank you, Haley.
1: Well, thank you very much, Haley. I- I'm told we have to praise Guy Johnson now. Do we have to do that on Bloomberg Radio? You know
0: why? You know why? It was a solid interview. It was, it was it wasn't a solid that interview. It was one question. It was like many questions. Have, have you got any more? No, it's it was okay. It was good. I Br- think
1: it, bring was, in it R- was better than good. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Guy Johnson, shall we? Who we sat down with the president of Turkey, Guy Johnson. Welcome to the program. Good morning, fellas. Help me out then. What was your sense from the Turkish president on the direction of monetary
2: policy and what he'd like to see? He came here to London. He knew what he was doing. He delivered a message. The message is clear. I am in charge. I'm not only in charge of the government. I'm in charge of all aspects of the government. Everybody answers to me.
0: Guy, I thought it was fabulous how singular the interview was. And our Benjamin Harvey with years of experience in Istanbul felt the same way. We interviewed Mehmet Semsek the financial guy for Mr. Erdogan, at IMF meetings. Is he even been part of the picture, or is he tangential to what Turkey's going to do with Lira at 4.45?
2: He's currently sitting next to President Erdogan. He sat next to him at the lunch that I hosted with President Erdogan, uh, and he was present during the interview, off camera, obviously, but he was there. Yeah. Uh, so he is currently part of the team. After the elections... Who knows? And that's another factor that the financial markets are watching. He is one of the few last... In fact, I think he's the only last remaining part of the economic team that the markets have any faith in.
1: Guy, for our listeners um, worldwide who have been following this story, it's a really odd situation in Turkey where they have double-digit inflation and the traditional response to that is higher interest rates. But we have a president in Turkey who wants to see lower interest rates. Guy, did you get a sense from the president... Of whether he was worried about what was happening in the FX market, worried about what was happening in the bond market. If
2: he was, he didn't show it, John. He uh, honestly, he came here. This is, I, he came to Bloomberg. Yeah, um, he, he came to London. This is, I, these are two kind of bastions of the financial landscape, and and he walked in and he delivered a message. He he knew what he was doing. This wasn't something that was delivered by accidents this was this was a message that was sent loud and clear to the financial community to investors I'm in charge, this is how we're going to run monetary policy, and I am going to be the one that ultimately uh, decides which direction that is going in. He's already indicated, he did say last weekend, that he thinks rates should be going down, not up. You have to assume that that is now the direction of travel. He has a very different view of how economics works. So Guy, aside from the fact that he has this really different view
1: as to how economics work, typically markets like independent, credible central banks, in the next month there's an important election in Turkey... Talk to us about what happens in the next month in terms of electoral politics and how it may reshape this central bank.
2: Well, he's becoming he is, the, he is becoming um, effectively, he's going to be in sole control. At the moment we have a parliamentary system, we are going to go to an executive presidential system. That is how it's going to work. All power will be centred in him. He is going to change the constitution to allow himself yeah. control of almost all, in fact, all of the levers of power in Turkey. He, it, it everything will centre on him, and as a result of which, why should monetary policy be any different? Guy, fantastic interview, just a brilliant interview. And Guy
1: Johnson, Tom Keen even said it was solid, and I think that hurt him a little That's bit. That's a tick in the box. Did that, did that hurt a little bit to admit that it was solid? No, it was great. No, it was <laughs> superb. And you
0: know, and I'll say this as well: it's very hard, much harder, I should say, to do an interview yeah. where they're answering in their own language. I agree. I agree. And that really can, with a translator and it really changes the dynamic from you know like a craft standpoint, from a method standpoint.
1: And it took the story forward. I'll say. Yeah, in a way. I don't care way.
0: what. The, the bottom line is the market doesn't give a damn what Guy Johnson thinks. Is Guy gone now so I can <laughs> tear him to shreds? Okay. The, the, the bottom line is the market, John Farrow. The market is saying to Guy Johnson, you don't know what you're talking about. Also, me, I should I, say. I think the small. market's
1: saying that to the president of Turkey. Let's yeah. bring in Phoenix Kalin, shall we? Society General Director of Emerging Market Strategy. Phoenix, great to have you with us on the program. Your thoughts on that Bloomberg exclusive, the interview with the Turkish president and how it shapes your views on the Turkish currency now.
3: Yeah, I think it's just shocking the message that he actually delivered to an international audience of all people, um, which really undermined any credibility that investors still had in in the Central Bank of Turkey and in what actions they're able to take to, to stem the current currency routes. So I think, you know, there's, um, there's, there's a lack of credibility on the part of policymakers to, to try to take the appropriate actions. And so we're likely to head toward that yeah. currency crisis.
1: Phoenix, if you're Murat Setengkai, the governor of the Central Bank of Turkey, what on earth do you do now?
3: Well I guess it's it's difficult to understand the place that he's in considering the kind of political duress that he's under and we don't have you know a clear sense of, of what that is but you know if he if he were able to to take the full powers of of his role, then it would be to necessarily calm down the markets via coming out and asserting um, the the independence of the central bank and try to do an emergency rate hike, which is what the market is demanding in order to address the the currency routes.
0: Yeah, I I look, Phoenix, at Turkey, is it discreet to you? I mean, you follow it full-time for Sokjen. Is it a discreet event or does this have knock-on effects to other uh, countries?
3: Well, I think right now Turkey is kind of an isolated situation because we we do see some stress on other emerging markets right now, but nowhere near the, the extent that Turkey is experiencing, and that's coming from the culmination of vulnerabilities that, that Turkey has in terms of, you know, exposure to um, high oil imports with rising oil prices right now and high external financing needs. Um, so it's it's
0: a confluence yeah. of all of those factors. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned oil. Brent crude, 7,907. Does Brent crude at 7,907, does that fold right in to reduce GDP in Turkey? Are they going into recession uh, as we speak?
3: Well, I think it, it functions more into the trade channels of it really impacting the, the trade balance and then the current account deficits and, and exacerbating those external vulnerabilities and from there influencing the financing (coughs) channels and then onward to GDP growth. So it's it's a few steps, but yes, that does ultimately curb down consumption um, as we move into this this later cycle, which I suppose is what President Erdogan is trying to prevent by trying to overstimulate growth.
1: Phoenix, just before we lose you, one final question. You did mention in this conversation the risk of a currency crisis in Turkey. What is a currency crisis good, in Turkey, and how, how close are we to one?
0: We, there's no pressure well, on we, you, Phoenix. We just want to know when the tipping point is. Is it,
1: is it a five-handle <laughs> on yeah. dollar-lira? I don't know, Phoenix. What is it?
3: Well, I just hope it's not a six-handle. Um, wow. no, Phoenix, I, I think there's are... no pressure
0: here. The general counsel of Sokjen is not listening, okay? What's the tip <laughs> point here? What's the tip point here in the crisis? Well, I, I, think,
3: I think this is it. This is, you know, the... Us witnessing that the central bank has no ability to step in and and do um and take the appropriate actions right. and with the political authorities coming down on them, this is sort of the okay. us descending into the crisis.
0: Phoenix, thank you so much. Phoenix Kalen with us with such Society society uh, General.
1: Let's get that economic data, shall we? Here's Vinny down to dice.
4: Hello, Jonathan. Retail sales and manufacturing. The Commerce Department reporting retail sales rose 0.3% in April, less than the prior month, which was actually revised a bit higher. But in line with forecasts, excluding autos, we see a 0.3% increase. The Retail Sales Control Group, which I know Tom Keane monitors closely, up 0.4%, a bit lower than the prior month. Manufacturing, Federal Reserve, Bank of New York, Empire Manufacturing Index, regional index, topping forecasts up to 20.1. Again, the headline, retail sales up 0.3% in April. I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back
0: to New York. A little soggy, Vinny. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. A little soggy report. Yen moves, weaker yen off that. These are little, little tweaks. I don't want to overplay that. Dollar stronger. Uh, Yen moves uh, weaker, but there's a lot of other noise out there. Uh, Ten-year yield, importantly, just now goes through 3.03 to four digits, 3.0336. On the ten-year yield, equity futures deteriorate, negative nine, Dow futures, negative 102. It is good to get an update from Frances Donald. Uh, She is with Manulife uh, on the American economy, on Canada uh, as well. We say good morning to all of you across Canada uh, Francis, uh, the character of the retail report, beneath it, there's a lot of data. When you dive into the, the data today to write your manual life note, what kind of data do you look at in the granular uh, uh, pages and pages?
5: Well, number one is that control group number that comes through because that's what the Bureau of Economic Analysis is going to use to calculate the GDP number. So we can breathe a sigh of relief that came in on expectations today and does suggest that Q2 is going to be the comeback kid that we were hopeful it will be. Under the surface, we're looking at things like gas sales, important because those gas prices rising are eating into consumer pocketbooks. We're going to take a look at autos to make sure we're not seeing too much of a deceleration there, and and then my personal favorite, I always have an eye on those non-store retailers. Not because there's a day-to-day trade or even quarter-to-quarter trade, but they've become so significant that they are starting to move the economic picture in a broad
0: step. So let's rephrase that to be clear. Amazon is in this data this morning?
5: <laughs> they are. So total retail sales have been running about 4 or 5% year-over-year. Non-store retailers are over ha- or double that, closer to 10% year-over-year. Year. Re- online retail sales have grown from about 3% of total retail sales in the 1990s up to 11% today, and they've captured about 65% of all retail sales yeah. growth over the past two years. Yeah. And that's why we have to watch non store retailers, because they become part of the inflation data. That's the link
0: between the two. Do you, as a non-sell-side retail, internet-y type, as an economist, do you just extrapolate Amazon's market share growth?
5: Well, we pay attention to it, and the the most important extrapolation is really what it means for pricing power. What does Mm -hmm. this mean for companies and their ability to lift the price of their goods and services over time? And is this part of the disinflationary story? When I look at retail sales data, and every time I see that non-store retailer's number come through, I just think this is disinflation.
1: Just want to get to the price action, Francis, what's happening in the market. Um, A new year-to-date high, a new one-year high, new multi-year high on a U.S. 10-year yield at 3.04%. Dollar strength, renewed dollar strength against everything in G10 and the bulk of emerging markets as well. Francis, what do you make of what we're seeing in the rates market as rates and the U.S. dollar seemingly are recoupling over the last month?
5: Yeah, This is confirmation that the U.S. just had a soggy first quarter that there's strength behind the U.S. consumer moving forward. The U.S. consumer has been the pillar of growth in the United States, and we're hoping that we can withstand that pillar and then add to it with some additional capex down the road. Now, higher oil prices have been a double-edged sword here. In one sense, we're worried that that's going to put some brakes on the U.S. consumer. This type of retail sales data here, fairly strong, suggests that no, the U.S. consumer can withstand higher gas prices. And then if we wait a little bit longer, we should see those higher gas and oil prices filter through to CapEx as well. So this data here is a really good confirmation and probably very supportive of the strong US narrative.
1: Francis, I'm just trying to understand, though, what higher rates and a stronger US dollar means for the US economy if this continues.
5: Well, it's part of financial conditions weakening. It's part of why 2018 has the ability to be a 3% year. Uh, But 2019 gets a little bit harder. All of a sudden, we have difficult year-over-year comparisons. We have higher rates. And all things considered, higher rates are going to put downside pressure, and they're intended to do so. And we have financial conditions that are tightened. But we're still way below historical norms. And with a consumer like this, I think they have the ability to withstand it.
0: Francis, one final question. When the Montreal Canadiens are as bad as they were in hockey this year, do you end up in Montreal just rooting for the Winnipeg Jets?
5: <laughs> well, they're our last hope, especially now that the Raptors are out of the NBA for this season. So yes, we gotta hang on to the even only game you we have left in the that,
0: game. That, I'm not doing I, I can't get there, I'm sorry.
4: Supreme Court uh, opening the door to legal sports betting around the country. It invalidated uh, federal uh, prohibitions against uh, wagering on professional, as well as I believe amateur sports. Ryan Preet uh, joins us now. Uh, Ryan, of course, uh, is our expert for all things Bloomberg tax, uh, state and local tax reporter. Ryan, thanks very much for being with us. Um, Tell us about this ruling and what it's going to mean for state and local governments.
6: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me on. This is a great program. Love listening to it as much as I can. So yeah. So yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled in Murphy versus the NCAA in favor of Murphy, and really in favor of New Jersey. So what this ruling does is it doesn't it doesn't legalize sports betting across the board. It just repeals the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act of 1992, also known as PASPA. It, it uh, repeals that and. Basically, give states the option to legalize sports betting if they choose to. So, New Jersey uh, had already passed a law that was contingent on this ruling to set them up to enact sports betting. So had other states Mississippi, New York, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So, what this means for those states is that they're going to try and get the ball rolling as soon as they can. Talked with a lawyer who's very familiar with this topic, and he said that New Jersey could be offering. Legal sports bets by this weekend, definitely by the NBA Finals. Um, so there's a huge untapped revenue, uh, revenue field here. Uh, you have the American Gaming Association CEO on a call yesterday. said that he believes that there's $150 billion in this illegal market that, that they could try and okay. suck up.
0: What does this mean to multiple decades of young Pim Fox and young Tom Keene growing up, knowing that if you bet on sports, you were bet, maybe not as bad as Pete Rose, but you were a bad and evil person and probably would go to hell. What, what that that cultural, that behavioral thing that we all grew up, you don't bet on sports because it's bad. What happened yesterday to that?
6: Oh, man, Tom, well, I'll tell you, yesterday that, that basically went down the garbage disposal because you even have professional sports leagues trying to, Get some of this revenue. You have the NBA and the MLB coming out outwardly supporting this. I mean, 2018 really is crazy. Right. The actual MLB coming out and saying, we support legal sports betting and we want to take in 1% of that. I mean, wow. That, that is really the fear,
0: crazy. They lost the fear of Ray Liotta and Shoeless Joe Jackson or whatever it was. They've lost yeah. the fear of the Chicago Black, Black Sox. Sox. This is go. before your time, Pim. I remember I just this. Just slightly.
4: But yeah, say it ain't so. <clears throat> So, well, so I mean and Ryan a, a, what the, N, the NCAA uh, are mm-hmm. they still against uh, sports betting because I mean this does raise a lot of issues about the integrity of the game
6: It does it does and you know that is one reason why the MLB and the NBA are trying to take 1% there one of their one of their reasonings for that is we're going to be able to protect the integrity of the game if we are taking in a piece of the revenue. Um, I'm not sure if that really makes sense, but, but you do have a couple states supporting that. You have West Virginia and New York supporting it. You also have Missouri supporting it. And, and while while none of those states have actually enacted an integrity fee into their law, they are outwardly supporting it. You have, you also had the NHL come out yeah. yesterday and say that we want our players, we want our individual players to benefit from this if this is, is going to yeah. be a thing.
0: Well, when you bet like this, Pim, quickly here, you do a Red Sox hedge, which is you bet that the Red Sox will lose, but (laughs) you do that if you're a Red Sox fan about April 1st, and then you do a spread calendar bet against it going out to July 4th, where you re-bet on July 4th that they're going to lose. Somehow I
4: imagine there's going to be the word kurtosis in this somewhere. It pays off. Well, Ryan. Yeah. So, so, what's next? We, as you said, maybe we get uh, we get sports betting in New Jersey by this weekend.
6: Yeah, that's hearing. Really? by this weekend. By, wow. by Definitely by the NBA finals. <clears throat> definitely by the Stanley Cup finals. Um, so, yeah, you'll 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 be seeing betting in New Jersey in the next week, next two weeks. Next up from that will be Mississippi because they already have casinos. They already have, I believe, a sports book built down there. Um, So I'm hearing that Mississippi will be the next couple months. The other states that have have enacted Pennsylvania New York, West Virginia, um, the people that I've talked to said, you'll be able to bet in those states by uh, the the Super Bowl in 2019. Um, And and next legislative session, um, you could expect up to 20 states, maybe even more, trying to propose legislation to, to legalize this.
0: Ryan Preet, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with an update there. we'll, We'll do more on this coming up here. Last night at Sotheby's, a big banner was put out by Brooke Lampley over the Assembled, looking at wonderful fine art, which said, make art great again. She succeeded in doing this. Uh, At Sotheby's, where she is vice chairman, she uh, became smarter than most on art history at a small school in New Haven and has moved on to a truly distinguished career. Uh, in art history and as vice chairman, again, of Sotheby's. Brooke Lampley, wonderful to have you uh, with us. I guess at Sotheby's you celebrate. What do you do after an auction last night, including the Medigliani at 150 plus million? Do, do you people break out, you know, the cold duck, or do you go expensive and try to, to have a decent bottle of champagne? What do you do after an auction?
7: We pause for a bit of celebration before going back to the auctions again today. We sell the day sales, and then tomorrow night we will be continuing uh, the Impressionist and Modern series with the collection of Morton and Barbara Mandel, which is opening the Contemporary Auction on Wednesday night. So there's only a moment.
0: I I was going to let Pim jump in, but that's right where I was going to go. How do Morton and Barbara Mandel... How do we become like them? How do you put together truly the world class art that they have, that they collected over their lifetime?
7: That's such an excellent question, because that's really what we're here to help people do, Um, and there are many art advisors working in this space to really help guide clients to assembling great collections that span various categories, but have their own internal logical aesthetic and dialogue. What was amazing about what the Mandels did was that they were looking at art across um, you know, an entire century. They had a fabulous large Juan Miro painting hanging next to a Donald Judd stack, um, and these works created a fabulous synergy in their incredibly modern home. So. Um, The collector brings a lot of context um, and vision to the art that they acquire and then how they present it. Um, That becomes part of the narrative of the object um, and part of the history that other people then go on to acquire when they acquire that work.
4: Brooke Lampley, oh. I, if I could just break in. I just want to focus for a second on the actual painting, this Modigliani that went for $139 million. That was the hammer price with the premium and so on. That goes to $157 million. Who bought it?
7: I can't, unfortunately cannot disclose any details of the buyer. And they are anonymous. And, but suffice to say that they are someone who was, um, were very excited um, to acquire an outstanding Medigliani nude uh, from this series and felt very confident in the price so much that they committed um, to guarantee the work in advance of the sale.
4: So what does that mean when you say guarantee in in, uh, in advance of the sale? That they already agreed to pay a certain amount of money if the
7: this work was guaranteed to sell going into the sale. Um, we had a uh, committed price that was um, going to be achieved for the consigner um, on the evening of the event. And um, it was already a fantastic result that the consigner Ooh. was um, very excited about. Um, and it's just a tremendous testament to the growth right. in this particular market. I well, mean, to see that um, six-fold appreciation since 2003.
4: And and who was the seller? Can you tell us that?
7: No, we can't disclose any details of the seller either.
4: Um, have you seen She's more? She's just a font of, of information. information. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, uh, because I know- There's
7: a I lot know, of Mona Lisa smiling on my side of the, I <laughs> the
4: see, phone. Because the last, the, the record auction for Modigliani, right, was that was set in 2015- and that was for a painting that i believe sold for about 170 million and that was purchased by the chinese collector lu yiquan
7: yes and i i was there at that time as well and um that was a fantastic result and it's to me very interesting to think given yeah. that they um that is a private collector who is acquiring for their public institution the long museum yeah. Yeah. um it would be an interesting exercise to try and imagine what this work might have sold for um, if that buyer were still in the market and hadn't already acquired yeah. a great example of a Medigliani nude for their museum.
0: Brooke, you have advanced art like nobody. I mean, you get a lot of credit for, you know, you had Johnny Depp's collection, blah, blah, blah. What do you need to play of our listeners, like like to go into you and your good competitors, including Bonham's? one block over from us on park Avenue. What do you need to play the game to assemble a modest or better than modest collection over 20 or 30 years?
7: I can't say that I believe there's truly any barrier to entry. You need passion and love and excitement about what you're looking at. And so many of the best collections that we regard now today in hindsight were formed by people just acquiring things that moved them, Uh, that they loved. And I think people learn over time, and it shapes the collection that they form. Money helps, though,
4: doesn't it? Money helps, doesn't it?
7: But we sell works from every price range no no I understand the, that but we, I mean we're we talking about the big ticket items, right a lot, I mean we're
4: talking about you know a medigliani that goes for a hundred you know 50 million dollars Picasso right I mean you're talking 180 million uh, is there any limit do you believe I mean we've seen that uh Leonardo right the uh, I think it went for 450 million dollars uh, Leonardo da Vinci Salvatore Mundi that went for 450 million dollars mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Brooke, Brooke, within this is the different auctions that Sotheby does. And maybe this is away from your core competencies, but I kind of think you could speak to it. How's photography doing? I mean, there's always been the critics, well, you should paint or pop photography will have its moment. It's it's Vogue. You have a in London, you have on May 17th, just two days from now, a photographs auction. Is there a spirit there as well, like you saw last night?
7: Absolutely. And I think the important point is that um, as more people enter the market, as there's greater and greater knowledge and confidence in the art market, people um, are increasingly apt to appreciate works for their quality and not um, segregate them in terms of medium or region. Um, It's you know, works on paper are on the rise. Photographs are definitely on the rise. You'll see an increasing number of photographs that are being offered in the contemporary art sale, as opposed to in yep. a photograph sale, because we're finding that those. Um, right. Those small those, <clears throat> those regional categories, for example, American paintings or uh, Latin American paintings specifically, which we integrated into right. our Impressionist and Modern sales this season for the first time, they're increasingly outmoded. Well, you people are just looking for great works.
0: And, and you mentioned the Tate Modern jump-starting the Medigliani nudes and all that, or what the the V and A did with medieval tapestry a year and a half ago, or what they just did the Charles I exhibition in London. Do museum exhibitions okay. drive you? your world of collecting?
7: There's a balance. But yes, I would say generally they do. They can increase momentum or accelerate interest in a space where interest already exists. Um, A great example of that, in addition to the Medigliani retrospective, would be the exhibition of Picasso's works from 1932 that is presently at the Tate Modern and previously was in Paris. People were already seduced by Picasso's yeah. paintings of Marie Therese, and as great depictions of Dora have become increasingly scarce, um, yeah. people are turning to other lovers as marquee subjects, right. but certainly this exhibition helps to focus interest on that period and accelerate
0: the prices i mean i mean brooke very quickly here and i i know your husband was bidding on this sotheby's in, in europe had the bulgari diamond ring like four thousand carats or something that went three times how's jewelry doing above I, I mean john tucker is that your is that we'll have to leave it there brooke you're doing jewelry book i see that's good to see you're doing I have the early works rings. of dylan and bailey my gallery. <laughs> very good brooke lampley thank you so much congratulations to all at sotheby's on a spectacular auction last night led by the mediglia and pen manager brooke lampley is vice chairman of sotheby's we could go on with her forever but have to leave it here with a really interesting market thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.